Well, good morning, everyone, and amen. I'm just uh, really grateful to see God continuing to have us live out our value of generosity and uh, to think that there are children on the Cape going without and members from this church just felt led to give and to respond to that need. Very thankful for that. This morning, I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes recapping where we've been with our vision frame. If you've been following along with this, we've been looking at a a 10-year vision that God has placed on our hearts through a StratOps team at this church, and I'm presenting it to you because we need to adopt this as a vision as a church family. Remember, the vision is we are called to advance God's kingdom on Cape Cod by inspiring, training, and mobilizing transformative leaders. Now, why are we getting so concerned about raising up leaders? Well, that's what we're looking at right now in our series, The Master's Plan. I I think I can argue well from the scriptures that Jesus' plan for impacting the world was raising up transformative leaders. He did that through his disciples. So that is our theme this year, transformative leadership. We're doing that because there's four key milestones that we'd love to achieve as a church family. Uh, The first is a potential facility update. The second is impactful community engagement. The third is to see a growing population of young families. And the fourth is to partner with our denominational affiliation, Converge Northeast, to plant more churches in New England. Remember, to climb a mountain, you don't get to the top by just hoping that you make it to the top. You have to put one foot in front of the other. And so our first steps in this direction involve organizing three win teams. Win teams means what's important now. So these three teams include the Dream Team, which is a facilities team, and that's headed up by Craig Campbell. And then we have a community engagement team, and that's headed up by Steve Barney, and a leadership development strategy team headed up by Nick Kleppel. I want to remind you, church, and I'm going to say this a lot as we move forward, these teams are meant to be approachable. Uh, We want to hear perspective. We want people asking questions. We believe that in order for us to move forward in aligned, unified fashion, that there has to be good collaboration in the church around these ideas. But even bigger than all of that, is the thought that goes like this. Plans are only plans unless God makes them a reality, right? A plan is only a plan until God actually empowers that plan. God chooses to honor that plan. And what I've come to believe down in my bones is that nothing of spiritual significance in this world happens without prayer. If we're really going to seek God's face, if we're going to head in the direction that God wants us to head, then we will be a prayerful people. So all of this vision stuff, right, these charts that I've been going on about, our mission statement, this vision frame, you know, it really means a hill of beans if we don't pray. I remember Jesus' words, we were looking at that actually this past week in our 21 Days of Prayer Evo. He said in Matthew 9 that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest field. I like how the ESV translate it. Earnestly pray. Earnestly pray that God would do this. Instead of creating a strategy and a plan and and going and tackling it, start with the first thing first. Pray about it. Earnestly means to engage in something with complete focus and attention, expanding significant energy to see something happen. Well, our StratOps champion went to our prayer team for just that reason, to share all of these things that God's put on the StratOps team's heart, but we've really got to get the church together and praying about this. I was blown away by a conversation I had just this past week with one of our members, Bob Kinsey. He called me last Sunday and he said, you know, When you were talking about empowering others and passing the baton, I want to share something with you that God's been putting it on my heart to be praying for the next generation of leaders at Osterville Baptist Church for some time. And I think a lot of the conversation that we're having right now is partially due to prayers just like Bob's. I I see that as a a kingdom-minded kind of prayer. Instead of just praying you know, God, I've been serving for decades and I've been leading and those kind of things. And what do you want me to do now? Bob is getting kingdom-minded. He's saying, God, I want this work to outlive me. I want it to move beyond my sphere of influence and I want to see more spheres of influence raise up. Church, that's how we got to pray. If we pray for our vision in this sort of way, I believe that God will move us in this direction. Let's get back into the master's plan. Remember, we're talking about transformative leadership, and the first thing that we looked at was the makeup of a leader. We're asking the question, who is a transformative leader? And as we looked at Jesus' strategy for raising up disciples, we saw that it was the average, ordinary individual that Jesus called to be leaders. We then move from there to look at the tunnel vision of a leader. Because it's easy as a church body to kind of focus on a lot of different things, and then it becomes like herding cats, right? You've heard that before. Well, the tunnel vision is the Great Commission, as Armin shared, making disciples. And if we focus on that, then we're destined to head in the direction Jesus called us to. Last week, we looked at the measure of a leader. There's all kinds of measures that are out there. There's measures of ambition and success and those types of things. But as you look at Jesus' measure for greatness, we saw that the core characteristic of that was humility, serving others for the glory of God. And today, we're going to be looking at the limits of a leader. Now, John Mark Comer, he's a pastor and writer, made this really significant observation from the beginning of our narrative, the book of Genesis, that defining narrative that said two things about us, that we are image and we are dust, made in the image of God, but also created from the dust. So you got that, image and dust. Image talks about the potential, and it's a lot of potential, isn't it? You know, Scripture says of you, that you share characteristics with God, that you are like God in some ways. And part of that has to do with the uh, purpose that God has given us, that we're to rule. 
Part of it has to do with the behavior that we're to be like God in certain ways. But here's the thing. That's only half the story. The other half of the story is dust. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that you and I inhabit decaying bodies. Now, as you think of those two things, image and dust, potential and limitations, I I would argue that there's a lot that is said about the potential side. And I don't really have problems with that. I, I like that idea of, you know, encouraging people and telling them to step out in faith and, and being all that God can, has called you to be. But again, there's another side of the story, and that has to be the limitations. There's no New York Times bestsellers right now on limitations, right? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the title, Accepting Your Limitations, How to Make Peace with Your Mortality and Cosmic Insignificance? I just don't see the publishers lining up for that book. There's a tendency within ourselves in this culture to deny the limitations, to say that we can be anything that we want to be, that there's no restrictions, there's no confines. Let me ask a question. What is that value or philosophy costing us as a culture? I just read a book this week. It was by Dr. Richard Swenson. The book was titled Margin. And he said this. He said, something's wrong. People are tired and frazzled. People are anxious and depressed. People don't have the time to heal anymore. There's a physical instability in our day that prevents peace from implanting itself very firmly in the human spirit. He goes on and he says, we must have some room to breathe. We need freedom to think and permission to heal. Our relationships are being starved to death by velocity. No one has the time to listen, let alone love. Our children lay wounded on the ground, run over by our high speed good intentions. Is God now pre or pro-exhaustion? Doesn't he lead people beside the still waters anymore? Who plundered those wide open spaces of the past and how can we get them back? There are no fallow lands for our emotions to lie down and rest in. I think we've deceived ourselves a little bit in 2020. I think we thought that the world got unhealthy in 2020, but I am convinced that the world was unhealthy before 2020. You see, all of our activity and the buzz and all the things we were doing, that was the rug that was sitting on top of the dirt. And 2020 just kind of pulled the rug off of the dirt. We kind of realized when we were in lockdown that some of our relationships are broken. We realized we're not really doing well emotionally and spiritually, and there's an uptick in a lot of these kinds of problems. A church, that's why we need to take a serious look at the lifestyle of Jesus, the pace of Jesus. As we take a look at that this morning, I, I, I was struck by a conversation that Dallas Willard had with a young pastor that he was mentoring. Uh, if you don't know who Dallas Willard is, he, he's a philosopher, or was a philosopher. He went home to be with the Lord in 2013, 
and he really focused on the area called spiritual formation, which is the attitudes and rhythms and habits and disciplines that we organize our life around to grow in Christ. He came up to the young pastor and he said, give me one word to define Jesus. And let me ask you, what, what would that word be? Think about it right now. How would you define Jesus in one word? I think there's a lot of words that come to my mind, like teacher or Lord, servant, compassionate. Well, as the young pastor was going on and on with words, Willard kind of paused and, and he gave his word. And get this, this is his word. Relaxed. Relaxed. Now, I don't know about you, but... As I was organizing my list in my mind, like relaxed was the farthest thing from my mind. But I want to demonstrate to you that that's actually a profound observation about the pace of Jesus' life. Let's just look through the Gospels for a moment and, and we'll observe how Jesus organized his time and went about things. Notice this first observation Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. Now, if you look at the background with that age of when Jesus began, it has something to do with the fact that Jesus truly was a bona fide rabbi. And in this culture, rabbis were really supposed to start the work when they had reached the age of maturity of about 30. That's when they went about it. But I want you to notice something in that. Jesus didn't get out ahead of the boundaries or the limitations of the culture. He was patient. He was willing, again, to go with whatever the limits were. Second observation. Jesus' first act of ministry after the baptism was not to go and get a crowd of 10,000 people so that 5,000 of them would believe his message and start following him in mass. No. It was to follow the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and to fast for 40 days. Luke 4, 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, if you were to boil down Satan's temptation to a word, what would that word be? And I would suggest that he was tempting Jesus to hurry. You know, all the things that Satan's tempting Jesus with in Luke chapter 4 are all things that God the Father had promised him just in his time. So Satan's temptation is to get out ahead of God, to you know, usurp God's timing to do things in his way. Another observation. Jesus seemed frustratingly unhurried at times. I think of that interaction in Mark chapter 5 when the synagogue leader comes to Jesus and he's in a crisis mode. He's in a panic. His daughter is on her deathbed, and he says to him, teacher, come with me. I know that you can heal her, and, and you know what it's like to be in crisis mode. I don't know about you, but I get in the car, and I am transgressing the speed limit. Like, we are flying down the road. I'll put on my emergency lights. We're going to make this happen, but Jesus moves at a frustratingly slow pace. They're walking to the site where the girl is, 
And he actually stops and he heals a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. Now, how would you feel as a parent in that moment? I would have been behind Jesus pushing them along. We've got to get there. But the Son of God was never willing to move any faster than the Father's will. And you notice something about the pace of Jesus in this. His relaxed pace made space for a true miracle. And he shows up and he raises that little girl from the dead. Final observation. Jesus regularly stepped away from the needs of people to be alone with the Father in unhurried communion. Luke 5, verses 15 and 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Now, when we were looking at the Gospel of Luke, we saw that there was a press and a pressure and a fame that was coming Jesus' way at this time in his ministry. And I, I know this tendency in myself. When the press and the pressure come, I don't pull back and get unhurried. I step into it and get more hurried. But Jesus he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, this is just a sampling of Jesus' ministry, but here's the principle that we're developing here, that there's not one point in Jesus' ministry where he's rushed or hurried or worried or where he's doing something that he doesn't want to do because he's afraid that he's going to let people down. I know, like, what you think when you think about the life of Jesus. It's easy to say to yourself, well, yeah, but he's the Son of God for crying out loud, and I'm not the Son of God. You know, he knows things that are going to happen before they happen. He's all-powerful God. I'm not like that. Well, friends, while that is true, at the same time, we all need to have a deeper understanding of the Incarnation. What does the Incarnation mean? Well, it means that Deity became dust. It means that a God without limits surrendered himself to limits for our sake. God became flesh. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 enters into the paradox of all this, and it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, if you go back to that idea of image and dust, we see that Jesus embodies the full potential of a human being while living with all of the limits. He had weaknesses. What were they? Well, they were a physical body. There were times when he had sleep deprivation. I'm sure there were times when he was hungry. There were emotions, anger, sadness, There was relational dysfunction at times, right? His family wanted him to get off mission and and to stop looking so crazy. There were people, of course, who were antagonists against him. And, And Jesus had all of these things, and yet at the same time, he lived within the limits. In fact, I would suggest to you that Jesus is the perfect example of a human being living within the limits, Well, how could he do this? I think we learn something of 
why he operated this way in John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see, Jesus perfectly operated within human margins because he was always completely at rest in the will of the Father. He entrusted himself wholly to the Father's provision, to his care, to his timing, and also to his will. He perfectly exemplified Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. You see, Jesus' theology made a difference. Now, again, we could look at Jesus and say, well, he perfectly knew the Father, so of course he knew all of this theology. But again, he's the perfect example of a human being living with the belief system of a big God. He trusted God with everything in his life. And think about the benefits that he experienced as a result of that. There was a lack of stress and anxiety in his life. Freedom from guilt and expectation of others. And an abiding sense of peace and contentment with respect to just where he was supposed to be in that moment. And Jesus never suffered with FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. That sense that I'm always not where I'm supposed to be and there's people out there experiencing things that I could be experiencing too. But Jesus operated in such a way that he always trusted that he was right where he was supposed to be. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I could use a little bit of that. And if we could use a little bit of that, we have to understand that we got to start operating within the boundaries We're getting outside of the boundaries when we're constantly seeking to do more, earn more, when we're trying to be more well-liked. The only values that I see with marginless living is negative in nature, like debt, broken relationship with kids, and divorce, chronic stress and anxiety, health problems, overeating. Developing addictions, bouncing back and forth between what we were talking about last week, the inflated ego and then the deflated ego. So clearly Jesus' way is better. And what we find in the scriptures is he doesn't just live this way, but he offers this way to us. Let's take a look at Matthew 11 for a minute. Matthew 11, verse 28. I imagine that as Jesus is speaking to these crowds, he's seeing all of the needs of that day. We've been talking a lot about the needs of our day. But back then, the needs focused more on three big realities, right? Food, clothing, and shelter. That's what the crowds were concerned with. And here's this miracle worker who is going out and he's performing miracles and he's meeting these needs in miraculous ways. But when Jesus makes an offer to the crowds, he does not offer them warm clothing and full bellies. No, he offers them something far more satisfying. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One scholar notes the the paradox. There's a paradox in Jesus' statement of offering you and I an easy yoke. He says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give to the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We we cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way that we've been living. Our answer to the life without limits is to kind of jump between two extremes. On the one extreme, we're over-functioning. We are just going and going and going and going until every last ounce of energy is used up. Then we bounce over to the far other extreme, which is under-functioning, where we start becoming aimless and purposeless in our use of time. So we work really, really hard so that we can play really, really hard. We grind ourselves away only to show up for the spa day. But the Bible doesn't define rest like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I like relaxation just as the next person. But if we define rest as relaxation, we're really missing what the Bible's getting at. See, rest in the Bible has more to do with pace and rhythms. So our pace and rhythms that are mindful of our limits. For example, the human bodies, their body requires seven to eight hours of sleep per night. Did you know that? The human mind can only focus on so many tasks at one time. Did you know that? The heart can only carry so many concerns. It cannot carry the concerns of the entire world. Did you know that? Certainly we can be a part of the solution, but we can't fix it all. So one of the key tasks of following Jesus is living both within our potential, doing good work for the glory of God, and within our limits, recognizing that I am an embodied creature. This is how I offer myself to God. Now, Jesus' offer is this. I promise to give you good work. Work that's meaningful, purposeful. And I will never, ever crush you with that work. In fact, if any aspect of your life is crushing you, you can be certain that you do not have Jesus' yoke on your neck. You have the world's yoke. So as we consider this principle from the life of Jesus, let me give you three more reasons why moving within our limits matters. 
The first thing I want you to see is all that Jesus is seeking to grow in you is incompatible with hurry. Dallas Willard, again, was having a conversation with another pastor. And the pastor called him up and he said, uh, Dallas, I, I'm, I'm interested. How do I get to be the me that I want to be? And, and maybe a better way to frame that question is to say, how do I get to be the me that Jesus wants me to be? That's, that's really what we're getting at, isn't it? And after a long pause, Dallas Willard said this. He said, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, the pastor, when he heard that, he was like, oh, that is a great Twitter comment. And he furiously writes it down. And he's like, yes, this is good stuff. Okay, what else? What else? And Willard replied, there is nothing else. Hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Uh, Corey Tenboon said it like this, if the devil can't get you to stop following Jesus, he'll just make you busy. Listen to what the Proverbs say. Proverbs 19.2, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? Now, how often are we missing the way because we are frantically and frenetically running past it? been thinking a lot about this lately. I've been thinking about, you know, the, how many spiritual conversations and opportunities to influence my kids for Jesus have I missed because I was in a hurry? How many divine appointments have I missed? Opportunities to tell people about the Jesus that I love and that I know because I was running to the next thing. How many times have I missed out at the core Christian virtue, love, whether that's to love God or to love others, because I was too busy for it? I mean, what was Paul's first descriptor of love in 1 Corinthians 13? He said love is patient. Patient. And I want to suggest that you cannot love in a hurried way. If anything, hurry makes me do the opposite of love. I start getting irritable. Kids, hurry up and get your clothes on and get downstairs. We're going to be late. But if I would slow down, right? If we would slow down, we'd see the world in the way that we need to see it. I have a quote that is sitting on my desk and it's going to serve as a constant reminder. It says, jobs are only jobs. Cars are only organized piles of metal. Houses will one day fall down, but people are important beyond description. Church, if we were to grow to look like Jesus, we must never walk faster than the pace of love, joy, peace, and all of the other fruits of the Spirit. Here's a second one. Limits teach us to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. Slow down and simplify. Have you ever found yourself saying, I wish I had 10 more hours in a day? I've said it. And what would we do with that time? Well, 
Let me just imagine what we could do with your time. We could uh, let you learn another foreign language or something like that. And once you learn the language, then you could take that trip that you've always wanted to take and, and, and speak the language there. Wouldn't that be awesome? You could pick up that book on your bookshelf that's been collecting dust. You could catch up on that Netflix series that you've just been waiting to get through. Or, you know, you could get on Food Network and become the master chef that you've always wanted to become. And, you know, due to the extra eating, of course, you would have to join CrossFit so that you can get flat abs. You would pick up that instrument that you've always wanted to pick up. You'd start writing more poetry. You, you, you'd... Here's the thing. I've already used your 10 hours. They're long gone. You see, here's the point. The solution to an over-busy life is not more time. The solution is slowing down and simplifying our lives around what really matters. What matters? What really matters? As I look at the scriptures, I see these kinds of things mattering, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Living on mission matters. Loving and nurturing my family, investing in my marriage, investing in my kids matters. Partnering deeply with my local church matters. Engaging in productive work to the benefit of others and for the glory of God, that matters. Generosity matters. Living on mission in my neighborhood and caring for the needs of others and loving my neighbor, that kind of stuff matters. Now, let me ask, what matters far less? Well, do you really have time for that next project that you think you need to do so badly? I don't know. What if it's getting you off of the things that matter? Does your child, in order to reach their future career goals and their dreams, really need to join that additional activity, sport, or club? Do you really need to work the total number of hours you're working, whether that's 50 to 60 plus consecutive hours every week, so that you can ensure, ensure your success and financial security? What about getaways? What about that extra home? Is that really providing relaxation in your life? Or is it just one more thing that's causing stress because you have to manage it? Here's my point. I don't know what all the extra is in your life. I'm starting to understand the extra in my life. And here's the thing. The extra is okay in moderation, but when it starts piling up and it boxes out what really matters and it gets me stressed and anxious and fearful, I've got a problem on my hands, don't I? So if you're overwhelmed, what do you need to do? You need to slow down and simplify around what matters most. Third, you will find real joy when you operate within your limits. The Bible has a very important word that we all need to learn today. It's contentment. I don't know about you, but I find myself going back to Philippians 4.11 regularly. And Paul says in this passage, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You know what contentment really means? It's a state of peaceful happiness. You're looking at all the things that you have in your life and you feel peace and happiness around those things. Now, here's the thing. 
a lot of times we get out of the mindset of contentment because we're so worried about the limiting factors in our life. What are the limiting factors? Well, some of us, our limiting factor is our body image. We're worried about the way we look. Others, it's my mind. I wish I was smarter. I wish I could understand more things. Some of you, it's your giftings, and you're looking to the right and to the left, and you're like, I'm more gifted than this person. I'm left, left, less gifted. And here's the thing, though, about giftings, all right? When I'm comparing myself to others, it will rob me of joy. It will. Because there's always going to be someone better than you at it. Other things, my emotional wiring, my personality. Some of us wish we were more extroverted, others more introverted. Your family of origins, your education, your socioeconomic background, your season of life, even your lifespan. Now you can look at all of those things as limiting factors or you can view them as gifts from God. Remember, God made you just the way he intended to make you. He put you in the family that he put you into for his reasons. He put the circumstances that surround your life in your path for a reason. Peter Zero says this, he says, we, we find God's will for our lives in our limitations. So maybe God designed all of the limitations that you're experiencing right now so that you could be here right here, right now, and moving forward, doing what you're doing for the glory of God. So instead of fretting about it or resenting it or wishing it was different, why not find joy in it? Why not say, thank you, God, for my life and my circumstances? I don't need to change these things because you gave me these things for your purposes. As we close... I want to take and consider a business axiom. It goes like this. It says, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. You might have heard that one. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So if you're looking at your life and you're saying, you know, I seem to be getting a lot of lousy results. Uh, there's anxiety, there's stress, there's depression. I don't have a really good relationship with my family. It seems like I can never really connect with God in my quiet times. I'm just always busied and hurried and moving along. Think about it. There's probably something out of whack in your life. So what's the solution? Well, Jesus, again, made us a great offer in John 10.10. He said, I have come to give you life and life abundant. Now, what is abundant life? Well, we know that it has something to do with our salvation, of course. When I put my faith in Jesus and trust that he died on the cross for my sins, of course, I get this abundant eternal life in Jesus where I get to be the person that God designed me to be, the special limited edition version of Jesus that I was created to be. But I also think that abundant life is not just a future category in the Bible, but it's a present reality for the believer. Because the salvation that Jesus works in you is progressive. It's over the course of your life. 
So how do I experience that abundant life? Well, I submit to you that it involves, one, adopting the theology of Jesus, two, the ethics of Jesus, and three, and this is the one I think a lot of us miss out on, the lifestyle of Jesus. Live like he lived. If he truly is our master, if he truly understands what full human potential looks like within the limits, then we want to live like he lived. So church, if we want to be transformative leaders, that's where it begins. Living like Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, I am uh, eternally grateful for the fact that you sent your son. And yes, obviously it begins with the, the, the gratitude of our salvation, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Lord, everything that we have, every blessing that we have in this world flows out of that. But we also have the life of Jesus in the scriptures, these four gospels where we see how Jesus lived and, and there's so many principles there within that show us how our master conducted his life. I pray for the one here today that is just struggling with the loss of margins. Maybe they're feeling anxious, fearful, depressed, or a whole host of other symptoms, Lord. I pray that they would see that there's a better way, that Jesus' yoke is easy. It is not crushing. That, Lord, that they would reach out in their heart right now and have a conversation with you and say, I want to live according to your way, not my way. I want to operate my life at the pace that Jesus operated his. Lord, that is the offer that you give us in the scriptures, and I, for one, accept that offer. I want it. I praise you. I love you. I'm grateful to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.